Okay, ladies and gents. So here's where I start nailing my colours to the mast. <laughs> well, nailing them a little bit, anyway, because I'm going to talk about intelligent design theory, uh, which is, of course, quite a broad tent, as you'll see, and is compatible with a number of different models of creation. Um, but it's often much uh, misrepresented in uh, popular media discussions and so on. So whether or not uh, I can kind of convince you to jump on board with this view today, I hope I will at least give you a clear understanding of what it is with which one is being asked to either agree or, or disagree. And it will fall quite naturally into three sections, as we'll see, and I think I'll break it up like that with sort of uh, stop for five minutes here and there for questions of clarification as we go through. Um, what I'm presenting is basically based on two papers that I've published. The first was in uh, the philosophy journal Philosophia Christi, which is published by the Evangelical Philosophical Society in America. Uh, and the second is a paper that didn't go in the journal but did go on their website, the EPS website. I've got a page on their website that you can track down and you can print them off for free. But we've got some photocopies of them here today as well. Let me start with this freak spaghetti arrangement. How about eating out? How long do you think the poor photographer for this advertising company had to spend randomly emptying out tins of spaghetti until the uh, alphabet spaghetti just happened to fall into that arrangement of letters. It must have taken him absolutely ages, mustn't it? No, of course, as immediately you see that. You all intuitively see that the photographer deliberately arranged the alphabet spaghetti into that pattern. The ability to recognise that something is intelligently designed is just a, a basic faculty of our common sense, really. Here's a, another interesting slide. This life form, this is an electron microscope photo of some bacteria. This life form definitely is the product of intelligent design. And we know that because in 2010, a team led by Dr. Craig Ventner uh, assembled an artificial version of the DNA from a simple form of bacteria and inserted that artificial DNA into a cell from which the original DNA had been abstracted. And then it let it reproduce, which it did uh, according to its natural ways. And this was the result. So this life form definitely is the result of intelligent design, at least in part. To fully explain that, you do have to appeal to design, and we know that. Uh, and it seems to me that it's a clear instance where it definitely can at least sometimes be the case that something is the product of design, and you can know that, and surely knowing that is, well, basically a scientific thing. It wasn't a theological conclusion. Uh, interestingly, so that the assembled genome that they put together artificially would be recognisable as, as theirs, as synthetic, four of the ordered DNA sequences contained strings of amino acid bases that, in a code that they constructed, spelt out an email address, the names of many of the people involved in the project, and a few famous quotations. <laughs> 
Now, supposing you're, you know, you're a scientist from uh, Mars in the distant future, and you come across a bacteria, and you're looking at it down your uh, alien electron microscope, and you're looking and you think some of these strings of DNA is a little bit odd. They don't seem to code for a protein or whatever. And you're looking at it, and then you suddenly remember your code training, uh, because you used to be in the Martian Scouts. <laughs> and it strikes you that if you assign certain values to certain of the amino acids, you could translate this string of, of, of amino acids as, well, those are names, and, and that's a, a quotation from a, a book that you discovered on your last archaeological journey to the planet Earth, and, uh, and so on. And you then conclude that this life form was the product of intelligent design. It all seems perfectly possible, straightforward, and scientific. So that uh, lays the table in an interesting way, I think, those two slides. What is intelligent design theory? Here's two straightforward-ish definitions. Dembski says, intelligent design is the study of patterns in nature best explained as the product of intelligence. Or Marcus Ross says, ID, intelligent design often gets shortened to ID, is a philosophically minimalistic position asserting that real design exists in nature and is empirically detectable by the methods of science. So I suggest in my papers that there are really three core claims made by intelligent design theory. And if you agree with all three of these claims, that makes you an ID supporter. And if you disagree with one of them, then you're not. Um, but the more that you agree with, the kind of closer you are to the position. So here are the three claims. Number one, there exist reliable design detection criteria, some kind of rules that we can apply to things, some sort of test that we can apply that would reliably indicate that something is designed if it is. Secondly, that when you apply these tests to empirical evidence within the natural world, you can apply these tests... And that when you do so, third, it warrants a scientific inference to the best explanation that certain things are indeed the product of design. That doesn't mean, of course, that the things that don't pass the tests aren't the product of design. It's a positive claim, it's not a negative claim. Now, I think that all of this only really becomes controversial when the design in question would seem to point to a transcendent designer of some kind, when it seems to have sort of philosophical or theological implications. So let's look at those three questions. Those will be my three sections, and the last one is shorter than the first two. Part one, design detection criteria. There are various different criteria discussed. My favourite one is one that I used earlier today, this whole business of specified complexity. Now, is everybody in here, people who were here earlier today? Because I'll try and minimise the, the overlap between things. Um, but if there's anyone here who wasn't here earlier, I'll, I'll not completely eliminate the, the overlap, as it were. Right, OK, so I shall... I shall, there'll be some overlap for those who were here earlier, but I'll show you it in a slightly different way. Here's a clip from a documentary, Unlocking the Mystery of Life, in which William Dembski, mathematician from America, explains how he went about establishing some criteria for design detection. Ooh, there we go. So, he says, given some event or structure, 
or object, to convince ourselves it's designed, we need to show that it's improbably and suitably patterned. And it's described as complex specified information or specified complexity. It says this this combination of these two things that triggers us off to design. And I like illustrating it with uh, Scrabble pieces. And actually, in a sense, what Dembski is doing in that book, published by Cambridge University Press, by the way, is uh, firming up intuitions that go back at least as far as the uh, Marcus Tullius Cicero in the first century BC. When he said this, if a countless number of copies of the one and twenty letters of the Greek alphabet, made of gold or whatever you will, were thrown together into some receptacle and then shaken out on the ground, would it be possible that they should produce the annals of Aeneas? Big book. I doubt whether chance could possibly succeed in the producing of even a single verse. Supposing you're drawing Scrabble pieces out of the bag at random, and you draw out this sequence. It's quite a long sequence of letters, so it's an improbable sequence. There's only one out of a vast number of possible arrangements of Scrabble letters that you have to hand. So that's very improbable. But, of course, you could easily get away without saying that this must have been the result of intelligent design. It's complex, but it's not specified. It doesn't hit an independently knowable pattern, one that you haven't just read off the event in question. But supposing you draw out D-O-G out of your Scrabble bag, well, again, you could get away without saying, oh, someone must have done some you know, magic trick on me here or something. Because dog, although it is specified, it is not a very unlikely arrangement of letters because it's not very long, it's not very complicated. But suppose you're drawing your scrabble pieces out of the bag and you draw out this sentence from Plato's laws, all things do become, have become, will become, some by nature, some by art, some by chance. Now, I give you a scrabble bag, say, okay, draw, draw pieces out of it at random, you do, and that's the result. You think, oh, you know, okay, where's Paul Daniels? Or Darren Brown? Or, you know, don't you? Because it's both complex and specified and clearly the product of design or art, as Plato puts it. So you end up with an argument, very simple argument, that goes like this. Premise one, specified complexity reliably points to intelligent design. Premise two, at least one aspect of nature exhibits specified complexity. If those premises are both true, then it follows that therefore at least one aspect of nature reliably indicates intelligent design. So that's the basic intelligent design argument using that way of design detection. Notice that intelligent design therefore is not a so-called gap argument. Sometimes this gets accused of things like uh, being called a god of the gaps argument or an argument from ignorance, which would have the following logical structure. Premise one, I don't know how nature could cause X. Therefore, God did it. That is an argument from ignorance. That is a gap argument. And you'll notice it's not even a logically valid argument because it hasn't got two premises leading to a conclusion. It's only got one premise. And then you just leap 
to your favourite designer and insert it into the gap in your knowledge. Notice, please, that that argument is not the same as that argument, which is the genuine ID argument. Now, in one of my papers here, I talk quite a lot about the way in which various uh, scholars who do not agree with intelligent design theory, per se, nevertheless do agree that specified complexity is a reliable way of detecting design. So let me illustrate this with Richard Dawkins. In his book, Climbing Mount Improbable, he draws an interesting distinction between objects that are clearly designed and objects that are not clearly designed, but superficially look a bit like they are, which he calls designoid, coins this term, designoid. And he illustrates the concept of being designoid with a hillside that suggests a certain human profile. Can you see the, the shadow cast by this hillside here? Whose profile does that remind you of? Anyone? Think American presidents? Ah. There you go. Once you have been told, says Dawkins, you can just see a slight resemblance to either John or Robert Kennedy. It certainly looks a bit like a human profile. But some people don't see it, and it's certainly easy to believe that the resemblance is accidental. We obviously don't have to appeal to intelligent design to explain that. It's designoid. And basically what Dawkins would argue is every appearance of design in nature is merely designoid. Everything is like this, rather than like the mountain in America where the four presidents' heads are carved. Kennedy contrasts that Kennedy-esque hillside with Mount Rushmore, which he says are obviously not accidental. They have design written all over them. So A. Dawkins admits that intelligence is capable of outperforming the design-producing resources of nature and doing so in such a way as to leave empirical evidence of its activity. Because that's obviously designed, whereas that's designoid. He says, while a rock can weather into the shape of a nose seen from a certain vantage point, such a rock is designoid, but Mount Rushmore, its foreheads are clearly designed. And he says this, he argues like this, he says, the sheer number of details, i.e. the amount of complexity, in which the Mount Rushmore faces resemble the real things, i.e. that complexity fits for specifications, is too great to have come about by chance. In terms of mere possibility, he says, the weather could have done the same job, but of all the possible ways of weathering a mountain, only a tiny minority, complexity, would be the speaking likenesses of four particular human beings, specification. Hence, he concludes, even if we didn't know the history of Mount Rushmore, if we landed on Mars and went around the corner and saw these four faces carved into a hillside, we'd estimate the odds against its four heads, specifications, being carved by accident and weathering 
as astronomically high complexity. Obviously, the best explanation, says Dawkins, is design when you have something that's specified complexity. In the humanist magazine Free Inquiry, he said this in an op-ed piece. Specified complexity takes care of the sensible point that any particular rubbish heap is improbable in the unique disposition of its parts. You can arrange rubbish heaps in all sorts of configurations, all of which are very unlikely. A pile of detached watch parts, says Dawkins, tossed in a box, is, in a sense, as improbable as a fully functioning, genuinely complicated watch, i.e. specifiedly complex watch. What's specified about a watch, says Dawkins, is that it is improbable in the specific direction of telling the time. So he says, talking about uh, Dembski and another design theorist called Behe, who we'll see later, Behe and Dembski correctly pose the problem of specified complexity as something that needs explaining. So there we have a very famous atheist who disagrees wholeheartedly with the intelligent design movement, but very explicitly endorsing the first ID claim, core claim, that specified complexity is a reliable indicator of design. So his disagreement must lie elsewhere, but he agrees with that. Uh, And so it's not just a sort of partisan thing that that you, because you're an ID theorist, then you buy into that. Um, you can buy into that without being an ID theorist. But, of course, that might lead on to, to other things. So that's part one. Let's have a little pause there for any questions that we might have about the whole thing of specified complexity and design detection criteria um, and so on. I've convinced you all. <laughs> Okay, great. Well, if any questions percolate up, you can, of course, bring them, bring them up uh, later. If you want to read more about how scholars outside the intelligent design movement support that way of detecting design, then it's this paper, um, The Design Inference and Specified Complexity, Defended by Scholars Outside the Intelligent Design Movement, um, published in Philosophia Christie in 2007, that you want. And I look there both at atheists and at theistic evolutionists. Uh, and say that the fact that people of widely differing worldviews agree on this, uh, have independently come to the same view, sometimes more or less sort of pre-theatrically, sort of implicitly, sometimes explicitly, um, gives you quite a a degree of confidence that Dembski is probably at least on the right track in advancing that kind of criteria. He's written lots of books and articles of various different technical difficulties on it that you can easily track down on on the internet. So part two, this, the second claim was that there is empirical evidence in nature to which you can apply those criteria to then spit out the conclusion that there is indeed evidence of design in nature. The third claim is that doing all of that is a scientific thing to do. So let's look at the second claim about the empirical evidence and a few different areas of the relevant evidence. But let me point out that intelligent design is not... The same thing as young earth creationism, although newspapers and TV programs often bundle them 
in together. Indeed, some creationists are vehemently anti-intelligent design movement because they see it as not sufficiently biblical, biblically based, saying you should start with the Bible and intelligent design doesn't do that. Also, an ID theorist, someone who accepts intelligent design, is not necessarily someone with doubts about evolution. Not necessarily. They could be, but they might not be. And many intelligent design theorists, it's worth noting, even who do have doubts about evolution, and I showed earlier that there's lots of different senses of that word, um, accept common ancestry. Michael Behe, in particular, is a case in point. Um, He argues that the Darwinian process of random mutation, natural selection, is an insufficient explanation for common ancestry, but he believes in common ancestry. And I showed this uh, slide that shows that evolution means at least six different things. It has sort of six different elements to it. And I've arranged them from top to bottom in the order that I personally think and various scholars that I've read think are the most plausible through to the least plausible. And it's possible to doubt some elements on this list whilst accepting other elements on the list. So the question, do you believe in evolution, is just far too vague to receive a sensible answer. What you need to say is, well, which of the six elements are you asking me whether or not I believe? Then we can have a discussion, you know. And different people might draw a line at different places down this line of probability and say, well, I accept the ancient earth hypothesis, and I accept the progress hypothesis, that life used to be relatively simple and it got more complex over time. Uh, And I accept common ancestry. I think every life form is related to slightly different life forms that preceded it. But I reject universal common ancestry. I don't think everything goes back to one single common ancestor. And indeed, there are a number of atheistic scientists today who reject universal common ancestry for purely scientific reasons. Um, What about the Darwinian hypothesis? This is the idea that that sort of... um, This process of random mutation, natural selection, which certainly operates in nature, you can see it happen, certainly within the level of species and so on, but that an extrapolation of that process happening over enough time is adequate to completely explain all of the diversity of life that we see before us. Or the naturalistic origins hypothesis, I think this is the most shaky on the list, the idea that life arose from non-life by virtue of nothing but the ordinary laws of physics and chemistry. Um, I think that is extremely shaky, and and you will quite easily find statements from a wide range of scholars in this field saying that there is no agreed explanation of the origin of life. We don't know how it happened. And then they'll bring in their philosophical assumptions and, and sometimes say things like, but it must have a fully naturalistic explanation, and give us, you know, give us another 50 years, we'll get there. And maybe they will, but given the evidence that we have at the moment, I doubt it. So there are a number of different areas of the universe, different kind of levels of reality, if you like, that intelligent design theorists take these design detection criteria and apply them to that they think indicate design. And really, to count as an ID theorist, all you'd have to think is that one of these areas does give you the answer of design when you apply some good criteria to it. I tend to be quite maximalist. 
Uh, I tend to think that there's a lot of good evidence out there, lots of different areas of evidence that point towards design. Um, but you don't have to buy the whole show in order to buy into the show. So we could look at cosmic fine-tuning, as we did this morning, local fine-tuning, the origin of life, information in biological macromolecules, and irreducible complexity. Cosmic fine-tuning, this is my favourite little uh, animated illustration of this. We had a little uh, universe-creating machine set up that, in a way that represented our universe. So we've got one DARF, every law of nature we've got that's independent. It's tuned to the relative strength, uh, the weak force of gravi- uh, gravitational force and the speed of light and everything. If we took just, say, one dial, changed its relative strength by a very, very small percentage, pressed the create a universe button, Basically, the result would not be a universe in which you had life. Probably not a universe in which you had chemistry. Probably not a universe in which you had matter. And that was a big surprise to the scientific community when they started discovering these things. Fred Hoyle, who was an atheist who discovered one of these laws about the production of carbon in stars, complained that a common-sense interpretation of the data suggested that a super-intellect had been monkeying with physics. And he really didn't like the idea, but he was you know, courageous enough to say, well, that's what it sure looks like. Local fine-tuning, even if we have a universe that's compatible with the existence of life, it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition of there being life. The, the, the kind of habitat that we have here, our home on planet Earth in this solar system, in this position in our galaxy, is itself something that you might see as being fine-tuned. And I have a little video here that goes through some of these fine-tuning conditions of our local habitat. Estimates vary. But a current list of these factors would number at least 20 and include an oxygen-rich atmosphere, liquid water and large continental landmasses, a home star of the right temperature and mass, an orbital path that is neither too far nor too close to the home star, a moon large enough to stabilize the tilt of the planet's axis and the movement of its tides. A magnetic field strong enough to deflect the sun's radiation. And a position in the relatively narrow habitable region of a spiral galaxy. Now all of those seem to be pretty independent factors. The solar system has to be in the right place in the galaxy. The planet has to be neither too close nor too far from the sun so that the water there is not solid because it's ice or boiled away by the heat. So you've got liquid water. You need to have a, a magnetic field that's strong enough to protect that planet from the rays of the sun because it's got to be close enough not to be icy, but it's got to be protected from the harmful radiation that would destroy life otherwise, and so on. Christian astronomer Hugh Ross, who's an old Earth creationist, estimates that there's less than one chance in 10 to the power of 215 of there existing even one habitable planet by chance. Those are pretty long odds against us being here, and yet here we are. But perhaps even more interestingly in their book Rare Earth, Why Complex Life is Uncommon in the Universe, atheists Peter D. Ward and Donald Brownlee write this. If some godlike being 
could be given the opportunity to plan a sequence of events with the express goal of duplicating our habitat, our Garden of Eden. That power would face a formidable task, with the best intentions, but limited to natural laws and materials. It is unlikely that Earth could ever be truly replicated. And yet, here we are. So maybe we were here because of someone who wasn't limited by natural laws and mechanisms. Biological macromolecules. The strings of amino acids, Gs, A, Ts and Cs that code for different proteins, uh, which then get used by the cells to get shaped into little uh, protein complexes that carry out various different mechanical tasks in the cell. Now, it's worth pointing out that evolution can't explain the origins of things capable of evolving. If you're talking about the origin of life, the origin of a system that's capable of uh, mutating and replicating itself and undergoing natural selection, you can't appeal to the process of evolution by natural selection to explain how you got something on the table capable of undergoing natural selection. So, appealing to natural selection is not going to help in this area at all. Dawkins, of course, says nobody knows how it happened, but somehow a molecule arose that just happened to have the property of self-copying. We were just lucky. Theus Keith Ward says it seems highly improbable that in the primeval seas of planet Earth, amino acids should meet and combine to form large molecular structures capable of self-replication. The motive for positing some sort of intelligent design is almost overwhelming. The book to go to on this, and it's quite a chunky book, but he's got a fabulous website as well and some videos that you can see of him doing lectures. He's a very good lecturer, explains it very nicely. Uh, is this book, Signature in the Cell, DNA and the Evidence for Intelligent Design by Stephen C. Mayer. He's a Cambridge University-educated philosopher of science. And he comes, here's the kind of take-home point of the book. The probability of generating a single functional protein of 150 amino acids long, and that's a pretty sort of mediocre length for these things, is about one chance in 10 to the power of 180. Now, it's crucial that I mention that that's not the chance of finding some particular amino acid sequence of 150 amino acids. That's the chances of finding any functional sequence of 150 amino acids. Those are two very different things. He says it's extremely unlikely that a random search through all the possible amino acid sequences could generate even a single relatively short functional protein in the time available since the beginning of the universe. And he's talking there on an old Earth, old universe view. You know, 17.3 billion years old. But, well, the Earth is about 4.5 on that reckoning. Even a single functional protein, it's hugely unlikely. To give you some idea of these, these odds, when you're talking about 10 to the power of numbers, that's like how many zeros you put after the 10. There are estimated to be 10 to the power of roughly 80 fundamental particles in the universe. 
Okay. So when it comes to a number like 10 to the power of 180, if I could write one digit on every fundamental particle in the universe, I would run out of universe before I could write that number down. It's a pretty big number. <coughs> and let's paraphrase Dawkins. Let's just substitute some terms here and keep the logical structure exactly the same as what Dawkins said about Mount Rushmore. An argument that he put forward, so he clearly agrees with the structure of it. DNA, Mount Rushmore, is clearly designed. Undirected natural causes could have done the same job. But of all the possible ways of arranging amino acids, only a tiny minority would match the biological specification for functionality. Hence, even without knowing the history of DNA, we'd estimate the odds against its occurrence by natural processes as astronomically high. This is a bit of a caricature of an uh, interesting uh, atheist philosopher called Thomas Nagel, quite a famous philosopher. And he, uh, in a review of Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, He's one of these atheists who's not one of the new atheists and has various disagreements with Dawkins. And he says this about this origin of life issue. Dawkins recognises the problem, but his response is pure hand-waving. He says that there are a billion billion planets in the universe with life-friendly physical and chemical environments like ours. Actually, you see above, we've seen that other people would disagree quite a lot with that estimate. So all we have to suppose is that the probability of something like DNA forming is not much less than one in a billion billion. Dawkins is not a chemist, neither am I, but general expositions of research on the origin of life indicate that no one has a theory that would support anything remotely near as high probability as one in a billion billion, one in 10 to the 180 is a vastly bigger number than one in a billion billion. At this point, the origin of life, says Nagel, remains in light of what is known about the huge size, the extreme specificity, and the exquisite functional precision of the genetic material, a mystery. An event that could not have occurred by chance and to which no significant probability can be assigned on the basis of what we know of the laws of physics and chemistry. Irreducible complexity. It's a sort of subclass of specified complexity, a particular type of specified complexity that happens within uh, mechanical structures made of proteins in the cells. And the idea really goes back to Charles Darwin in The Origin of Species. Um, And in that book, he said this, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Well, Michael Behe took this uh, challenge up in a book called Darwin's Black Box, Um, which is now into its second edition. And uh, he uh, refined Darwin's definition of irreducible complexity a little bit. And he said this, By irreducible complexity, I mean a single system composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute 
to a basic function, getting some job done. Wherein the removal of any one of the parts causes the system to effectively cease functioning, to stop having that function. It's a little bit like, and he, he uses this analogy, a mouse trap. Here we have a mouse trap, and you see it has various separate different parts that are all put together in a well-matched interacting way. You have a, a catch and a bar and a, a hook a, a bar here, and that's attached to some sort of spring mechanism to give it power. Uh, and then those are all held together on a base. And you can kind of really intuitively see that if you didn't have the spring there, it's not going to catch any mice. If you didn't have the restraining hook to keep it sprung back rather than just sprung forward all the time, it's not going to catch any mice. If you just had the random collection of bits without the base holding them all together, if they weren't actually kind of unified together into a structure, it's not going to catch very many mice. And B, he argues in this way. He says, A, an irreducibly complex system cannot evolve directly, can't evolve directly by slight successive modifications of some precursor system, since any, by definition, any precursor that's missing one of the bits of that, that end thing you're trying to explain is by definition not functioning in that way, not achieving that job. So it can't be explained by a direct incremental improvement of that function. That's not how to explain the existence of the function. But it's also very unlikely, although possible, but unlikely to evolve indirectly, as it were. That would mean you have a system that uh, has one function, gets one job done, and then you have a mutation, maybe another part gets added to it, and it does that job better or does a different job. And then you have another mutation, and maybe it does a third job. And then you have a fourth mutation, and now it's a mousetrap. It does that job. That's very unlikely, he says. As the complexity of an interacting system increases, the likelihood of such an indirect route of evolution drops. And it's a sort of exponential curve of, of how difficult it gets, the more complicated it becomes, of course. The prime example, a bit of a flag of the ID movement that gets waved around a lot is this little motor, the flagellum rotary motor. It's used by some bacteria to swim around. And you can see, it. you can label the parts just like you can an outboard motor on a motorboat. Uh, it's got um, a propeller filament with a universal joint connected into the outer membrane of the bacteria here with some bushings and then you have a, 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 a um, stator and the motor ring that's an acid-powered motor. Now again, this is not a gaps argument from ignorance going on here. Irreducible complexity does, as B points out, count against explaining it by, by evolution, by Darwinian evolution. But irreducible complexity also counts in favor of intelligent design because you look at a mousetrap or an outboard motor and the obviously intuitive thing to think is, ah, it's designed. The burden of proof is on the person who wants to say, I know it looks designed, but actually it's not. It's designoid. 
even though the appearance of design here is not superficial, is not one that some people get and some people don't get, and you have to have it pointed out to you and so on, that the appearance of design here is so overwhelming that the huge majority of humanity, for the huge majority of history, have thought the only obvious conclusion is that there really is a designer. So Dawkins tends to kind of shift the meaning of his, uh, his terminology somewhat. If you say a mousetrap is a result of unintelligent forces, you'd bear a substantial burden of proof, wouldn't you? Likewise with the much more complicated IC biological systems. This is a little animation of the, um, the filament propeller being built, self-constructed by the flagellum. It's got a little machine that pumps up the various different proteins that gradually constructs the filament. So it's a machine that contains machines that build the machine and other machines that regulate the function of the machine and self-copies and, you know, it's much more complex and intricate and efficient than any man-made machine. This is the kind of stuff that people who are into biotechnology uh, and uh, nanotech and so on are going to for inspiration to help us improve our technology. I've got a fantastic video here of molecular machinery in the cell that tells you all about the, the copying of DNA and the way that that's used by the cell to build proteins that fold to do different specific jobs depending on how they fold, and they fold differently depending on the, the specific arrangement of the amino acids. I'll let the video do it all, but this is just mind-blowing stuff. Uh, this is a CGI animation of what goes on, but it's an accurate representation of what's going on in every cell of your body right now. Absolutely stunning, isn't it? Fascinating stuff. This is uh, atheist Massimo Pigliucci, whom I once had the pleasure of debating in the pages of Philosophy Now magazine, I think it was. And he says this, Be he does have a point concerning irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity is indeed a hallmark of intelligent design. There is no evidence so far of irreducible complexity in living organisms. I might just leave that one with you to weigh up in light of what you've seen. But clearly, I think, the issue here is a dispute about what the empirical evidence is. And to that extent, at least, it's a scientific dispute. I will say some few short things about the, the sort of tertiary issue of uh, is intelligent design, is reasoning like this scientific or not? Um, but clearly that's a sort of less important issue than the main thing. Are there good tests for design and does anything in reality pass the tests? Any questions about that? I will I struggle manfully to remember the, my uh, biology if you have biological questions, but... Um. Um, I was asking about Ken Miller because he's, like, he's mm. one of the most probably proponents of ID yeah. you might have seen the same lecture or he's, he's mm. done this in writing as well where he, he uses the argument um, if you take if you look at chromosome 2 in humans and mm. the whole thing about the f fusing of the, the chromosome 2 and stuff and he, he often uses that as an argument against ID I just realised that mm. he was right that that wouldn't be because a lot of idea proponents 
Common, common ancestry, common ancestry. Common ancestry. yes. What, what, he's, what he's doing... Um, sometimes people argue for common ancestry by saying there are common ways of things working in different organisms, and that's best explained by saying they got that, that way of doing stuff from one source and then diverged it after that. Um, that could be explained by common ancestry, or it could be explained by there being a designer who keeps reusing the same design in different places. I think a better argument for common ancestry is the argument that there are various places in different organisms, who are different species and so on, that don't work in the same way, that have the same mistake in the coding or whatever that's been preserved because it's not sufficiently deleterious to the, to the organism and that you could explain that by common ancestry. But as you say, you don't have to deny common ancestry to accept intelligent design theory. So it's not an argument against ID. It's, it's specifically about that common ancestry issue. Yeah. So that would be more, more an argument against young Yes, it would be more an argument against the idea that every form of life was created separately but then there's still be a question to ask about what you mean by basic type or form of life because young earth creationists tend to mean something broader than merely species uh, and sometimes you know, it's asking where does the, the scientific categories of like species and, and um, phenotype and uh, phylum and, and so on to what extent do they overlap with the terminology that's being used in the, in the young earth science camp yeah Can I just ask a question that you mentioned about the earth mm. um, Listening to people like um, Dawkins, mm. often caricature people like um, uh, Ken Ham mm. and uh, you aware of mm. Ken mm. Ham mm. is, I know that, uh, um, and, and ridicules those kinds of mm. very strictly more biblically centered. Mm. Um, what, what, what are your thoughts on? I mean, I've never Mm. spoken to Ken Ham, so I don't know whether he has conversations or dialogues like Mm. with Mm. Christians that are intelligent. Yeah, certainly. I think there's a lot of debates does go on, and and it doesn't take too too long googling these things to to kind of find them. You can certainly find debates on things like the issue of the age of the earth between people from an old earth creationist organisation like Reasons to Believe. Um, Hugh Ross, who I quoted, comes from that organisation and Answers in Genesis or what have you. Um, The Intelligent Design Camp is such a sort of broad camp that's compatible with other ideas that it includes young earth creationists like Paul Nelson and... Um, old earthers, people who believe in old universe and common ancestry and so on, like Michael Behe, who comes from a Catholic background. Um, so it, it allows for quite a lot of diversity within the area. But I, I, it's, in terms of what I was saying earlier, it puts the, the question of, well, the basic question, the doctrine question, is there evidence that we're here by design on purpose? Puts that front and centre, which I, I think is, is useful. I'll just say a few brief things about the scientific status of ID. I'm with Thomas Nagel, really, on this one, when he says a purely semantic classification of a hypothesis or its denial as belonging or not to science is of limited interest to someone who wants to know whether the hypothesis is true or not. Stuff can be true without being science. Okay? Because science is not the only way to know or explain everything. 
And we know that because the claim that science is the only way to know anything is not a scientific claim and contradicts itself. You must be able to know things that are not known scientifically, even to do science. So maybe claim one and two of ID is true, but the idea that actually intelligent design is science is false. Maybe it's philosophy. You know, who really cares? That only really becomes important when you're perhaps thinking about issues about um, whether or not you should allow teaching it in schools in the United States where you've got a separation of religion and the state and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, So I've said a little bit earlier today about methodological naturalism. I won't repeat myself too much here. Again, basically the idea that science, even if you don't actually claim that naturalism is true, that you should do science as if it were true. Uh, That basically, I think, is just as much stacking the table against really appreciating the evidence, seeing the gorilla, even if it's there in front of you. Perhaps, as you might criticise, Christian views that come from a particular reading of Scripture and say, okay, I must now go out and look for evidence that fits this view, rather than letting the evidence speak for itself. I think that's a kind of mirror image of what Richard Dawkins says when he says, the explanation we look for must only appeal appeal to physics. Uh, I think that's kind of putting the questions in the wrong order. You might end up at the same place, but I would be more comfortable with asking the questions in a slightly different order, as it were. And you can point out that, look, many sciences already depend upon inferring intelligent causes. You could make a distinction between inferring and mentioning intelligence in science and mentioning supernatural things in science if you want. Fine, you know, that might help people of different worldviews to collaborate together doing science, which would be a good thing. But as I said the other day, you know, if you've got two uh, forensic pathologists, one of whom believes in mind-body dualism, there's more to the mind than just the brain, the other of whom is a convinced materialist, minds are just brains, do they have to sort out that philosophical dispute about the nature of intelligence before they can say, because this cadaver on the table in front of us has got a knife in the back, it was murder. Design is the best explanation of this corpse. Obviously not. They can both agree that there is such a thing as intelligence, that you can detect its activity, and that intelligence is a good explanation of the facts. And then they can go down the pub, take off their scientist hats, and have a good old argument about the nature of intelligence and whether or not any intelligence is more than merely material. Perhaps you could do something similar in science with the design hypothesis in fields outside of things like SETI, archaeology, cryptography, forensic science, fraud detection, parapsychology, psychology and sociology, all of which appeal to personal agency as the best explanation for things. Atheist Bradley Monton recently wrote a fantastic book called Seeking God in Science, an atheist defends intelligent design, or defends it in part, at least. Anyway, um, he wants to raise the tone of the debate a bit, and I think he's uh, doing a good job at doing that. And he says this, if science really is permanently committed to methodological naturalism, to only appealing to material things and not to intelligence and or supernatural things, it would follow that the aim of science is not generating true theories. Instead, the aim of science would be something like generating the best theories that can be formulated subject to the restriction that the theories are naturalistic or compatible with a materialistic worldview. 
So as an atheist philosopher of physics, Bradley Monton argues that science is better off without being defined in methodologically naturalistic terms. And he says you should let in any explanation, even a supernatural one, if you've got some good evidence that fits some decent criteria for inferring that. Atheist Victor J. Stenger, in his book The New Atheism, he's a physicist and a philosopher. He says, I agree with Monton, an avowed atheist, incidentally, that intelligent design is science. Richard Dawkins, in The God Delusion, says the presence or absence of a creative superintelligence is unequivocally a scientific question, even if it's not in practice or not yet a decided one. Atheist Thomas Nagel, not a new atheist, he says, I agree with Dawkins that the issue of design versus purely physical causation is a scientific question. So actually, it's not at all hard to find an increasing number of atheists, of different types of atheists, who will agree that intelligent design theory is a scientific theory. It's just they think that it's a false one. And actually, as we've seen, you can find lots of atheists who will acknowledge that there are decent design detection criteria, specifically this specified complexity thing. It's just they don't think there's enough evidence to go through the criteria yet, at least. Well, I'll leave the decision on that one up to you. Arguing for intelligent design is not the same thing as arguing for supernatural design, let alone divine design. Obviously, you'd have to extend the argument. There is a whole range of possible designers. All you have to do to do ID is to think, well, design is a possible explanation of stuff. Let's go see if there's good evidence for it. And then if you think there's good evidence for it, you can ask, well, who was that designer stroke designers? What was their nature? Was it the flying spaghetti monster? Or was it God? Or was it Plato's finite demiurge, or a polytheistic God, or an angel, or a demon, or a spirit, or an imminent impersonal telic force, as in Stoism, or Frank Tipler's Omega Point, or John Wheeler's participatory universe theory, or time-traveling human scientists in a sort of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey way? There's obviously an argument to be had there. You might think some of these explanations are much more far-fetched than others, People will probably disagree about which one they think is the most far-fetched, depending on other things that they already believe. But particularly given that I think there's already other good independent reasons for believing in the biblical God, chalking up design in nature to him would seem to be a good way to go. Also, if you appeal to some finite, particularly any embodied sort of alien or something, would that being not itself contain irreducible complexity, specified complexity, depend upon fine-tuning, etc.? Um, you really, I think, philosophically are driven to the point where you say, okay, if there is a designer, ultimately there must be a designer who does not depend upon or contain specified complexity, who's not contingent, who is a first cause, which goes along very much with the cosmological arguments we were looking at this morning. If you want to argue into natural theology, into arguments for God from ID, you can, but it's an extension of ID. ID doesn't get you there. The scientific ID conclusion here is therefore, at least one aspect of nature, warrants a scientific inference to design. 
You need to add the philosophical premise that the best philosophical interpretation of this intelligent design in nature is at least broadly theistic in order to draw the conclusion that the best explanation of nature is broadly theistic. And the very fact that you have to extend that argument on from ID shows that ID doesn't get you to, is not the same as a theological conclusion or an argument from natural theology. Although it obviously has relevant, interesting things to feed into that discussion. And we're done. Thank you very much for keeping focus. You can all relax now and pigeonhole me for questions one-on-one. If you want, buy stuff at the book table, take free papers. I've just just been thinking, we Mm. are only fitted, as far as we know, we're only fitted for life on this specific planet. Mm. Well, how does that fit in with the ID theories? Would that be accepted? Yes, okay, there was a question about the the fact that we are only suited to life on this, this planet... Sometimes the question comes up of maybe there could be other types of life that could be suited to other environments. Um, that might be a discussion that affects the, the argument that I did from local fine-tuning about the planet and, and, and so on. But a lot of the chemists and so on that I've read have basically said that, that carbon-based life is really the only plausible way to go within the physics and chemistry of this universe. Sometimes people have talked about the possibility of like silicon-based life or whatever, um, but it seems from the scientific stuff that I've read that, that carbon-based life is the way to go, and there are certain specific conditions that you need in place for carbon-based life. But the fine-tuning of the universe argument isn't really touched by this question at all, because it's not as if were the force of gravity slightly different or whatever, um, our kind of life couldn't have existed, but some other type of life easily could have. It's, it's more the case that had any of those laws of nature been slightly different, you would have had a universe that re-collapsed upon itself after three seconds. Or you wouldn't have had matter condense out of the energy of the early universe, let alone getting chemistry happening anywhere of any kind at all. Um, so... Um, there's a discussion to be had that's relevant to some of the data there. I think there are interesting responses to it, but that doesn't touch this whole fine-tuning of the whole shebang kind of level. These are independent arguments, and you can think that some of them are good and some of them are bad. Um, They don't all stand or fall together. Um, But the more of them you think stand up, the stronger the cumulative case becomes for design, of course. Yeah. Oh, grand. I thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here and chat to you and be hosted. And I hope that you found that stimulating and interesting. And um, there's loads of materials. I have a podcast channel online through Damaris Trust. Uh, just Google Peter S. Williams in iTunes uh, or go to the Damaris website. And I've got a speakers page there. Uh, I've got a blog online called id.plus. If you Google that with my name, you'll find it. And that'll give you links to everything that I've got online and my papers on ID at Access Research Network and Philosophical Society and so on. Um, So plenty of of food for thought and, and sharing this material with friends and family as well. Thank you very much.